Please be seated. It's my honor to open God's Word with you this morning. Uh, Grace Covenant has been so good to me uh, ever since I showed up and married your music director. You have, you were loving Robin well before I came along, and now you've loved Robin and I, and Robin and Naomi, and I, and soon it'll be Robin, Naomi, and another little girl and I. So thank you for how you have loved us well. Thank you, Dennis and Session, for giving me the opportunity to uh, share this pulpit. Um, and we'll be looking this morning at Galatians chapter 4. If you have your Bible, open up to it. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, grab the one in front of you, the dark blue one there. It's on page 974 in that pew Bible. Uh, we need to open up the Word together. We need to have it in front of us. The Word is how we'll be changed through God's Spirit. I have a friend who said it's like the proof is in the pudding. And the idea is that if the Word of God works, if it's working in your life, then it's proven itself true. And we trust that it will work. That the Holy Spirit will teach. That He will guide. That He will lead us. And for that reason, I do want us to have the Bible open in front of you as I have it here in front of me. While you're turning to Galatians 4, we'll be looking at eight, verses 8-20. through 20. I'm going to pray for us. Holy Spirit, come and open minds and hearts. Open us to You, to how You will lead and guide us through Your Word. Show us the love of our Father in Heaven through Jesus, His Son. Show us more of the love of our Savior. And it's in His name that we pray. Amen. If you haven't been with us for the last several weeks that we've been going through Galatians, I wanted to give us a recap. Uh, or if you haven't been following up or you missed one here and there. In the study of Galatians, it's important to understand who the, the people in Galatia were. Who these, who these people were that came to the church and came to faith. The Galatians were not Jewish. Um, by and large, they were Gentiles who then came to faith as, as Paul came and lived amongst them and worked among them, shared his life, shared the good news of Jesus with them. And so they came to faith, and now something has gone amiss, and thus the, the reason for this letter. What's happened is there's a group that's come in, and they're often called the Judaizers. This group has come in, and they want to say, it's good that you're worshiping Jesus, but now, because you're worshiping Jesus, you must worship the God, the God of Jesus, in the same way that us Jewish Christians have. And so they've added all of these rules and regulations, the, the, the law, onto what, uh, to the way that they worship, to the way they live. So it's Jesus plus these laws, these ways that you're supposed to worship, these ways that you're supposed to live. In many ways, it's like the story of the of the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15. If you're not familiar with that, there is a, a younger son who goes to his father and he says, Father, give me all that you have so that I can go and live how I want. And he does, the father agrees, gives him his inheritance, and he goes off and he squanders everything. And, he's, and he lives however he wants. And, and he squanders all that money on sex, on drugs, 
on rock and roll. Um, I don't know if there was rock and roll at the time or anything like that, but, but you get the picture. He lived however he wanted to. And he finally reasons the, realizes the futility of that life. He realizes that that is not the way that I want to live, that this is not lived up to what I expected. And so he returns to the Father, and he expects to just come in and work as a slave for the Father. But the Father runs out and greets him. He says, you're my son. Come. You don't have to do anything. You're my son. Live amongst me. And, and they celebrate. They throw a party. But the older brother, his older brother, who had been there the whole time, didn't go into the party. He stayed outside. And the father went to him as well. He went to the older brother, and the older brother said, I have lived and worked with you. I have been your slave for all these years, and you don't even give me a goat to celebrate with my friends. But you killed the fatted calf for this son of yours who squandered everything? In many ways, these Judaizers are like the older brother who have come to the Galatians and say, all right, it's good that you're back, but now you have to get in line. Now you have to live the way that I've been living. It's a helpful picture as we consider what's happening in Galatians. And this is why Paul's tone in this letter is so striking. If you want to turn the page, you can. I'm going to just read a couple verses. Chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. Listen to how... Paul responds to the way the Galatians are turning from this good news of Jesus and adding to it, making it not good news at all. Chapter 1, verse 8. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. It can also be translated condemned. If someone preaches to you the gospel other than the good news of Jesus, they can go to hell. He says it again. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. In the tone, we see the, the way that Paul speaks to these Galatians who are turning away from Jesus. Chapter 3, verse 1. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It's before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Verse 3, are you so foolish? Having begun with the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? We see Paul's passion even more clearly in the passage we'll be looking at this morning. In chapter, in chapter 4, verse 12, we're going to pick up there and then we're going to come back to the first part of the passage. In chapter 4, verse 12, we begin to see how personally Paul takes what's happened with the Galatians. Read with me, verse 12. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. Paul's saying, live like I have. And to understand that, I want to just, I'm going to turn, you don't need to, to Paul expounding on this later on in 1 Corinthians 9. He says, for though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I may win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, 
not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I might share with them in its blessing. I think if I were to write that, I, would, I, I naturally probably would have said that they may share with me in his blessing. And I think that the turn of phrase there is important as we consider what Paul is doing, what he's after, what he's looking for as he's lived among the Galatians, as he's worked among the Galatians, as he's shared his life with them. He's not just looking for them to come to faith. It is what he wants. He's not just looking for them to come and share in the good news of Jesus Christ. He also wants to share in it with them. He wants them to share in the good news of Jesus Christ so that he can be with them as they experience that good news. You understand this. You understand that because you do it with a television show that you've seen. You say, I watched this television series, and I want you to watch it with me, and I'm going to watch the whole series again because I liked it so much, and I want you to see you enjoy it. I've done that with my wife. I will rewatch all of Lost. Because I wanted her to experience it and enjoy it the same way. And that's what Paul's doing here. He's saying, come with me. I want to ex- you to experience the goodness that I have found. And so he's become like them. He's lived with them. He's lived like them. He's walked with them. And he's saying, now become like me. Become like me and find the hope that I have found in Jesus. No longer living like a slave living like a free man. Verse 13, 14, 15, we'll look at together. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of the blessing you felt? For I testify you to... I testify to you that, if possible, you would have gouged out your own eyes and given them to me. Scholars, theologians, they make a lot about trying to figure out what Paul's condition was, what his problem was. Apparently it had something to do with his eyes. That's what it says right here. And apparently it was obvious that, it was, that you could see that there was something wrong with, with Paul. And, and they may have even had to lead him around because he couldn't see well. So is, have you ever had pink eye? Or have you ever seen someone with really bad pink eye? And you're like, yeah, hey, I don't really want to look at you. Or, you know, you wake up and you've got all that gunk in your eyes, and you're like, oh, that's disgusting. <laughs> that's the way Paul apparently was, as he was with the Galatians. But they didn't despise him, as would have been likely in that culture at that time. Anybody with a physical ailment, they were shunned. They were pushed aside. That they would spit and say, get away from me, unclean. But they didn't. They welcomed him in, which, which is a conviction to me as I think about how much I uh, treat people based on their appearance. And, and Paul says, I was, I was a mess. I was a big, hot mess. And you welcomed me in, even though I had junk coming out of my eyes. You welcomed me in. In fact, you received me like an angel. You received me like Christ Jesus himself because I proclaimed the good news to you. 
I proclaimed this good news that you're free, that you don't have to live like a slave anymore. And that's why he says, what's happened to your blessing? Why have you turned back to these old ways of living? Verse 16, have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? No one wants to hear the truth. Not if it doesn't fit with the way you're living or what you're doing. Nobody likes rebuke. It makes me think of the Paul Simon Garfunkel, Simon and Garfunkel song, The Boxer, where he says, a man hears what he wants to hear and disregards the rest. I mean, maybe that's you this morning. You just want to hear what you want to hear and whatever you don't like, you'll push it away. Paul's saying, you need to listen. You need to hear the truth. And there's a reason you need to hear the truth, which we'll talk about. Verses 17 and 18. They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out, that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I am present with you. And that's a weird couple verses, right? It's like you read that, and it's just... It's, I don't know, if you're anything like me, you just kind of glaze over and it's like, ah, that's confusing, Paul. Let's, let's just move on. Uh, the desire of the translators for the English Standard Version, which you have in front of you, which I'm reading from, was to make it as close to the Greek as possible without losing its readability. I think it loses a little bit of readability here. I prefer the NIV, so I'm just going to read that. It says, those people are zealous to win you over. What he's talking about is the Judaizers. They're zealous to win you over, but for no good. What they want is to alienate you from us so that you may have zeal for them. The Judaizers, they want them to follow, they want the Galatians to follow them. They want them to live like they're telling them to. They don't want him to listen to Paul because if they listen to Paul, they won't follow the, the Judaizers anymore. He says, it's fine to be zealous, provided the purpose is good, and to be so always, not just when I am with you. So, again, Paul is speaking to those who are trying to lead the Galatians away. And he's saying, I'm telling you the truth. They are not. And then we see Paul's passion even more clearly. Verse 19, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I've never personally experienced childbirth, um, but I've, I've seen three children born. I've watched the anguish. Uh, and, and it's striking that Paul compares what he's going through with that anguish the anguish of the gospel being born, and the fear that it's not. And remember, when Paul's talking at this time about childbirth, not as many children live, not as many mothers live. So he's afraid. He's saying, I'm fearful for you. I'm in the anguish of childbirth. You may not survive this. I may not survive this because you're turning from the goodness that I have presented to you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed by you. Why so passionate? Why this tone? Why this tone of rebuke? 
My favorite movie right now of all time for the moment, uh, and, it, and I say that because it changes, you know. But for the last couple of years, it's been The Shawshank Redemption, which is a great, great movie. And uh, it's a beautiful picture of redemption, the name. Uh, but like any great picture of redemption, great story, there's some parts that aren't so pretty. So I can't recommend it for everybody. Uh, it's a story about Andy Dufresne, who was wrongly convicted of murdering his wife, and about the couple decades that he spends in prison. Uh, and I have a particularly affinity, affinity for prison movies, uh, and it's probably because of the four years that I spent at Southampton Correctional Center, just a couple hours down the road. And uh, I was telling this to a friend at, uh, at whom I work with, um, Rodney. I was telling Rodney, I said, you know, I spent four years at uh, Southampton Correctional Center. He laughed. And then, I, and then he looked over at me, and I looked at him, and I was like, seriously? And he got all serious. And he says, what'd you do? And I looked back, I said, Rodney, don't you know? Everybody in prison is innocent. I didn't do nothing. <laughs> and he laughed. And then I said, I'll tell you what I did. I was the warden's son. All right, so you can relax now. <laughs> so my middle school years, I lived within a quarter of a mile of some of the most dangerous inmates in the, uh, in the Commonwealth. And I don't know, so maybe that's why I like prison movies. But I like this one. I like these. Well, maybe, you know, what happens in the movie is we get to know the people in prison. I don't know if you've ever spent any time around prisons. Um, Probably some of you have worked with prison fellowship. When you get to know the, pe the people, it changes the way that you think about people in prison. In the movie, you get to know some of the people. I got to know some of the inmates, um, men who made some really bad choices and suffered because, because of it. And in, in this movie, in Shawshank Redemption, you get to know some of, some of the, the people that were in there. And the story, one of them in particular, is a guy named Brooks Halton. If you're familiar with the movie, he's the older, uh, little white-haired librarian who has a pet crow. And, and Brooks, he, the actor, he reminds me of my grandfather, which is another reason why I think I'm partial to the story and this character in particular. He's short of stature and broad of shoulder, and uh, he's got a full head of white hair, and he's got a nose that has far outgrown his face. And I imagine that's what I'm going to look like. Sorry, honey. Uh, and, and Brooks is a sweet old man. And he's been at Shawshank, the prison, for 49 years. He was there for 49 years, living in prison, locked up. He's well into his 80s now. He has this little crow that he raised, called him Jake. Raised because he fell into the prison yard. When, Jay, when uh, Brooks was, got the news that he was about to be released on parole, he freaked out because how is he going to live anywhere else? He's been living in prison for 50 years. So he takes a knife and puts it to the throat of one of his friends, a fellow inmate. And, and he, he doesn't kill him, but he says, if I kill him, then they'll, they'll let me stay. His friends convince him not to. And then one of the next scenes is him releasing Jake 
He's got his suit on, an old, outdated, dark suit. And he takes Jake up to the window, his pet crow. And he says, I can't take care of you no more, Jake. Go on now. Go on. You're free. You're free. And then we see him walk out of the gates all by himself, standing there wondering what to do. This letter that Jake, I mean, that Brooks sends back to his friends tells what happens in the rest of the story. Dear fellows, can't believe how fast things move on the outside. Saw an automobile once when I was a kid, but now they're everywhere. The world went and got itself in a big hurry. The parole board got me into this halfway house called the Brewer and a job bagging groceries at the Foodway. It's hard work, and I try to keep up, but my hands hurt. Sorry. But my hands hurt most of the time. I don't think the store manager likes me very much. Sometimes after our work, I go to the park and feed the birds. I keep thinking Jake might just show up and say hello, but he never does. I hope wherever he is, he's doing okay and making new friends. I have trouble sleeping at night. I have bad dreams like I'm falling. I wake up scared. Sometimes it takes me a while to remember where I am. Maybe I should get me a gun and rob the foodway so that he'd send me home. I could shoot the manager while I was at it, sort of like a bonus. <laughs> I guess I'm too, too old for that sort of nonsense anymore. I don't like it here. Tired of being afraid all the time. I've decided not to stay. I doubt they'll kick up any fuss, not for an old crook like me. P.S. Tell Haywood I'm sorry I put an knife to his throat. No hard feelings. Brooks. The next scene is Jake, I'm sorry, to Brooks' legs dangling after he hanged himself. So why is Paul so passionate? Why is Paul in anguish unto death? Because he's fearful that returning to slavery will do the same thing to them that it did to Brooks. We're sympathetic to Brooks. He was institutionalized. Lived inside for four, almost 50 years. All he knew was prison. All he knew was slavery. All he knew was a lack of freedom. And what the Galatians here are doing is turning away from freedom. They're turning back to that slavery. Verse 8. Formerly when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? You think, why would anyone want to be a slave? Why would you want to turn back to slavery? The picture of Brooks and Shawshank Redemption begins to make sense of that. It's all you've ever known. There are, however, some of you here that think, I've never been a slave. I've never, I've never been a slave to sin. I grew up in the church. I grew up with Jesus. I, there's no slavery to turn back to. 
Think about it like this. What, what has happened is we have accepted functional gods. They were far more sophisticated than the Galatians who were going into a temple to worship various pagan gods. Probably very few, if any of us, have been in a Hindu temple and seen the gods that are worshipped there, much less gone in to worship them, because we're far more sophisticated. We have our gods, and if you've been around church long enough, you've probably heard these gods talk about before. Money, power, sex, work. They, they can become gods to us. But these gods are far more devious than to simply be identified than what we name them to be. We have to go deeper. Let's consider sex. Let's consider the, the god of sex. For those of us who have been a slave to the god of sex, you know that it's far more than just about sex. It's not about pleasure. It's not about the serotonin, the dopamine, the chemical responses that go on. It's not about the comfort that comes. We could spend a long time talking about this, but what it is, at its base, what its root, it's about acceptance. The desire to be accepted. It's good to be accepted by the right people at the right place at the right time, by the right God. It's good to be accepted. But when that becomes more important than anything else, then it becomes a God that we worship after. And sex is just the symptom of worshiping after the God of acceptance. Think about it like this. My 16-month-old daughter, the other day, I was trying to get her shoes on her. And she had wanted nothing to do with that. She was freaking out, like squirming and crying because I was trying to bind her feet. You know, who can blame her? Finally, I was like, Naomi, stop it. And I said it firmly. I didn't yell. I didn't raise my voice. I have yelled at my kids before, but not this, not this time. I was like, Naomi, stop it. And it was a rebuke. And she knew it. And so she just bawled. Like she just wept. It went from, I don't want to put my shoes on, to I was just rebuked. So I did get her shoes on. And then what do you think happens next? Parents here know. You think, if I've just been rebuked by my father, I want to turn away. I don't want anything to do with that. But that's not what she did. As soon as I was done putting her shoes on, she turned around. She gave me a big hug. She put her head on my shoulders and continued to weep. Because she wanted to know that she was accepted by her father. You say that you've never been a slave to these things, but that it's inherent in who we are as humans. We're created to be accepted, and we're afraid that we're not going to be. So we'll do whatever we can to be accepted. And sometimes it takes us to some very dark places. And these are the gods. These are these elementary principles of the world that Paul is warning the Galatians about. As I was preparing for this, I came across David Paulson. Uh, he's with Christian Counseling and Education Foundation, CCEF. Some of you are familiar with him, with CCEF. 
came across his book, Seeing with New Eyes, Counseling the Human Condition Through the Lens of Scripture. In this book, he has what he calls x-ray questions. And these questions are to get at what are these gods that are not gods that you are bowing down to. There's 35 of them. You can find the x-ray questions online. I can help you find them if you like. I'm just going to read um, nine of them. Uh, um, but it's going to help us. It's going to help you examine what are your functional gods. Where is it that you're placing your hope? But number one, what do you love? Hate. This first great commandment question searches you out. Heart, soul, mind, and might. There's no d- deeper question to ask of any person at any time. There's no deeper explanation for why you do what you do. Disordered love hijacks our hearts. What do you want, desire, crave, lust, and wish for? What do you seek, aim for, pursue? What are your goals and expectations? What, where do you bank your hopes? What do you fear? What do you not want? What do you tend to worry about? What do you feel like doing? What do you think you need? What are your felt needs? What are your plans, agendas, strategies, and intentions designed to accomplish? What makes you tick? What, does your, what sun does your planet revolve around? Where do you find your garden of delight? What lights up your world? What fountain of life, hope, and delight do you drink from? What food sustains your life? What really matters to you? What castle do you build in the clouds? What pipe dreams tantalize or terrify you? What do you organize your life around? Many gripping metaphors can express these, the question, what are you really living for? To be ruled, say, by deep thirst for intimacy, achievement, respect, health, or wealth does not define these as legitimate, unproblematic desires. They function perversely, placing ourselves at the center of the universe. It is a lot of work, a lot of personal work to determine what you're living for, to ask the question, where are you finding life? What are you hoping for? I'll be honest for you, one of the things that I really struggle with is thinking that if I get a job in a church, then everything will be okay. And then my life will make sense. And I repent all the time. And, and then I think, oh, if I repent of that, then God will answer that prayer. <laughs> and then I have to repent of that. But it has become... The, the, and and what, is the, what is the functional God behind that? Security, respect, desire for influence. These things become more important for me than God himself. For many of us, it's money. We might just say, well, I like nice things, but why? What are your functional gods? Where do you find your hope? Verse 10. You observe days and months and seasons and years. Oh, what just happened? That doesn't make any sense. And it's, it's abrupt, and we're not sure what's going on, especially in this line of thought or rhetoric. But think about it like this. If you have become a slave to something, it's going to affect the way that you live. If you have become a slave to any of the number of things that we've talked about, then it's going to affect the way that you worship. 
And that's what's happening with the Galatians here. They are returning again to the slavery of doing what's right, of doing what they're supposed to do, of doing what good Jews did. And it was like when they were uh, Gentile pagans. In their worship, they observed festivals. They had specific days of worship. They had seasons of worship. And what Paul's doing here is he's comparing that to that same Jewish calendar. This, he's saying that because the Jews, he, did, he could have listed specifically the Day of Atonement or the Sabbath or the, um, the Sabbath year cycle. He could have listed specifically these Jewish celebrations, but he didn't. He said days, weeks, months, seasons, years. Because he's comparing their old way of life as pagan worshipers to the way they're now trying to worship as Jewish Christians. And he's saying both are worthless. In fact, worse. Both will kill you. Because what they've done is they've added on to the freedom that they found in Christ. Why pause in such anguish? Think about it like this. Why do you go to church? What are the reasons that get you out of bed on a Sunday morning to show up here week after week? Is it because that's what is expected of you? Is it because the people here will give you a hard time if you don't? Is it because of what people will think about you if you don't? Don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm just saying don't come to church. If you don't feel like it. What I'm saying is to ask why you come to church. Because if the reason that you come to church is because it's supposed, it is what you're supposed to do, then of course you're missing the reason for what we're doing. But you've also started down the road to slavery. A slavery of doing the right thing. Of finding your acceptance. It could be the slavery of reputation. If I'm not at church, then people will think I'm not a very good Christian. You're headed down the path to slavery, like the Galatians were. And why Paul speaks so strongly. And this could be true for other means of grace. Why do you read your Bible? Why do you pray? Why do you enjoy fellowship with other Christians? I don't want you to stop reading your Bible. I don't want you to stop praying. I don't want you to stop going to church. But what I do want you to do is ask why you're doing these things. There's a difference in how we approach these things. And when we, when we come to it and we say, all right, why am I going to church this morning? You realize, ah, it's just because... That's what I'm supposed to do. Then you, then you can say, this is, this is not what God has called me to. This is not how a child reacts. A child comes to church, a child of God comes to church because they want to spend time with their father, because they want to worship, they want to rejoice. Why would you want to be a slave? Why would you want to return to slavery? In some ways it's easier. A, B, C, I do A, B, and C, things are right and good, A, B, and C, I got it. It's not A, B, and C, it is you're loved, 
a friend at work, a young woman, early 20s. She's a Christian, and we have, we've talked about life and faith. And she came to me uh, at one point during our, our work day, and she just said, it was kind of in passing, she said, I need to own the fact that I just hid from one of my professors. And, and she wanted to do that because she knows that that's not the way that she's supposed to react and live. And so we stopped right there by the pastry table. And I said, well, why? Why did you want to hide from your professor? And she's like, well, you know, I mean, I have a degree from William and Mary, and I'm working at a grocery store, and, you know, I have this feeling like I should be doing something more. And it's like, well, is that who you are? Ask the question, you, are you defined by what you do? She's like, no, I know. And she's like, well, well who are you? She's like, she said, I know, I'm a Christian. And I said, you're a daughter. You're a daughter of the king of the universe. That's what defines you. You're defined by your father in heaven. You're a child. I said, you're a princess. And I said, that's it, you're a princess. And so every once in a while around the store, I'll say, hey, princess. And other people will hear and they'll laugh, and they'll think, princess? Is he making fun of her? Does she think she's a princess? But I say, hey, princess, and she just grins. And I grin, because we know what we're talking about. We know that her identity is not found in what she does. Not by the good things, like coming to church, or reading her Bible, or praying. Not by doing the right things. Not by doing the wrong things. Her identity is found in being a daughter you can't preach this sermon without going back to the verses preceding. So look back with me at chapter 4, verse 3. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoptions as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of a son into our hearts, crying, exclaiming, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. You are a princess. You are a prince. You may look at this and say, well, why does he say sons? Because other places, if you're looking at your footnotes, when it says brothers, it can be translated brothers and sisters, appropriately so. So why not, why not just say brothers and sisters or, or children? Why not say children? You are a child. Why say son? Well, culturally we know, and Dennis talked about this last week, culturally we know that only the firstborn son received the inheritance at that time. You only got an inheritance if you were the firstborn son. That makes sense. If we're going to explain it to people who understand that, then they have to be sons. But there's more. There is a firstborn son. And his inheritance was passed to you. Jesus was a firstborn son. His inheritance was passed to you because he chose death so that you wouldn't have to. 
He chose death so that you could find life as a son, as the firstborn son. For when the Father sees you now, He sees you as Jesus. No matter what you've done, good or bad, He sees you as His child, perfect, holy, and right for all time. Amen. Let's pray. Oh God, that we would live like Your children. That we would live like we know who we are. That we would live like we have been freed. We no longer want to live as, as a slave. We want to turn away from these things that want to kill us. And these good things. And we want to live with You. Come, Holy Spirit. Move amongst us. Change our hearts. This day, this day we want to live as Your children. Change us this day. Amen.